Mark chapter 6, again, is where we're going to be today as we read uh, just a few moments ago, so you can turn there in your Bibles, and we won't read it again for time's sake, but I do want to have another word of prayer and just ask God's blessing upon his word, and as I have said recently quite often, as I pray, um, I ask that you pray as well. Pray that God would speak to our hearts, that we would be ready and, and willing and eager to receive what he has for us, um, even if it's difficult, and we know uh, there are often times that, that we go through the scripture where what we read is difficult to, to process in our own lives. And I pray that this morning we would be uh, ready and willing to have the Spirit apply the, these things to our lives. So let's pray. God, again, we come to you with grateful hearts. Um, and God, I pray this morning that we come to you with ready hearts. Hearts that are ready to receive. Hearts that are ready to respond. Hearts that are ready to, to humble ourselves before you once again to take your word and, and to live it out on a daily basis. And God, as we continue through the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, certainly uh, we see that he faced much opposition, he faced many challenges. And God, in this passage today, he's revealing to his disciples that they too will face these things uh, while he's with them, but even after he's gone. And God, I pray that his preparation uh, in sending them out and, and preparing them for what they're going to face would also uh, be used in our lives to, to ready us for battle. God, that we would stand firm in the face of darkness, not in arrogance, but humbly calling men to repentance by turning to faith, by faith in Christ alone. So God, use your word this morning to do a great work in our hearts. I do pray that you'd be with the nursery workers, the children's church downstairs, God, just give them a great uh, time in your word as well. And may uh, the truths that they study this morning be planted deeply in their hearts as they, as they understand even more at a young age of what it means to follow you. Thank you again. Be with us now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One of the games that we would often play as neighborhood kids was follow the leader. Anybody else play that when you were a kid? We played it quite often, and we lived in a neighborhood with six houses, and across the road, the main road, my grandfather owned a, a field, and there was a baseball field, and so we would spend many hours each summer uh, following and leading, taking turns, filling those roles, and we had a great time doing it, and it's really a pretty harmless game, uh, but my brother and I uh, decided one day to play follow the leader in the house, in the basement, and that seems harmless from the get-go, but we decided to mix it up a little bit, and we put blindfolds on each other, and then we strapped roller skates on, and we thought this was going to be just a great, great time in the basement, and it was my turn. I got to be the leader first, and so we put the blindfold on my brother. He strapped the roller skates on, probably in the opposite order, and I was younger than him. I still am. That's how kind of that works, and uh, it was my turn to lead, and so I started leading him around the basement, and we were having a great time. And then something came over me. And I don't know if it was all the pent-up aggression of being a younger brother for all these years and thinking through all the things that my older brother had done to me, but I turned around and I hauled off and I hit him as hard as I could. And then I took off running and I hid. And that's the last time my brother wanted to play follow the leader with me. And to this day, I still keep an eye over my shoulder because he hasn't gotten me back for that yet. Uh, but like any older brother, he's going to get me back one of these days. We're, we're still friends. We still talk about it. But I anticipate 
that something is coming down the road where he is going to get me back. And so follow the leader. It's a, a simple game, right? Somebody is leading and either one or many people are following and you're giving commands, you're telling people what to do. And when you go through that order, when you go through that process, it, it, you switch things up, somebody else becomes a leader and you can play on and on and on for hours and hours upon end. As we look in Mark chapter 6 today, Jesus is really getting ready to play the game of follow the leader. And that may sound really simple to you, but if you read the text, that's what's going on. Jesus had finished up one part of his ministry as he, as he did all these great miracles, as he calmed the storm, as he healed those who were sick, as he raised people from the dead. Jesus did many great things. And as they made their way back across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus then decided that it was time for him to go to Nazareth, to his hometown, and he was going to show his disciples some difficult things. He was going to teach them some difficult things. He was going to instruct them in some difficult things. And his expectation was that they would follow him. Now, we all follow somebody in our lives. Over the last several years, this idea of following people has become even more prevalent because of social media. Who do you follow? Who are you mimicking your life after? Who are you trying to emulate or who are you trying to be like? But as we think about our relationship with Christ, truthfully, there is only one that deserves our following and it is him. There's only one who deserves us to be devoted to him and it is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as we think about following the leader, in reality, there is only one leader to follow And he is the perfect leader. He's the perfect example. He's never going to blindfold us and put roller skates on us and then haul off us and hit us when we're least expecting it. But he's going to lead us in perfection. He's going to lead us to where he wants us to go. He's going to lead us to and through what he wants us to experience in life. The song we sang just a few moments ago, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. The first time I'd heard that song was a couple years ago at a conference we went to down in Tennessee. And I texted Gina, and I was all excited about this new song, and then come to find out it is not a new song at all. It's a very old song. And the heart of that song is is simply this, that wherever God leads me, I'm willing to follow him. Whatever God leads me to, I'm going to take it as what he has for me in this life, and I'm going to be devoted to him. And so following Christ, following God, should be a, a, a desire that each of us has if we are believers. And as we look through this text today, we're going to see what Jesus himself did but then also what he called his disciples to do and as he called his disciples to do certain things i think we can rightly apply it to our lives as well that he is calling us to do these very things as well this idea of following is all throughout the new testament it's all throughout the old testament it's all throughout the word of god as a whole in the book of corinthians paul called the church at corinth to follow him but if they followed him in his fleshly ways, if they followed him from an earthly standpoint, then he would have led them to failure. But what does Paul say? He says, follow me as I follow Christ. And as you walk in my footsteps, and as I walk in Christ's footsteps, together we will follow Christ together. We will will walk in his ways. We will follow his commands. We will do the things that he has called us to do as we follow the leader. And so this morning, I would ask us, as a church, I would ask us as individuals to ask ourselves, who is it that we're following in our lives? Are we following the one who is worthy of following? Or are we following our own path, our own dreams, our own desires? 
Are we following the one who came and died in our place so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be freed from the bondage of sin? Or are we following lesser people or, or lesser uh, guides in this life that will always lead us astray? My plea to us this morning, my plea to myself, is that we would follow the leader and that that leader would be the person of Jesus Christ. The big idea this morning is a question, and it's this. Am I following Christ by submitting my life to his authority and by modeling my life after his example? Am I following Christ by submitting my life to his authority and by modeling my life after his example? We often associate following Christ with a cost. And I love what A.W. Tozer said about this idea. If we wholly follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we must forsake everything that is contrary to him. If I am to wholly follow the Lord Jesus Christ, then I must forsake everything that is contrary to him. And so as we think through our lives this morning and as we think through this idea of following Christ, my prayer is that we would be a church that continues in this endeavor to follow him with all our hearts. We see three things this morning in this text that I hope will be a help to us as we think about following the leader. The first one is simply this, a prophet without honor. A prophet without honor. Verses 1 through 6 again says this, And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is it which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and of Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And he could do there no mighty works, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. A prophet without honor. Another shift was taking place in the ministry of Christ. We understand in the previous chapters he had just displayed his power and authority over nature, over uh, the physical uh, life form as we know it. He, he was displaying his, his total authority over all of these things. And people were flocking to him in every place that he went. They were impressed. They were amazed. They, they were starstruck at what Jesus was able to do. And the crowds were so great that as we saw earlier in Mark's gospel, that Jesus at one point was teaching from a boat because he was afraid that the people were going to crush him. The masses were so huge that, that Jesus was worried in some regards for his own safety and for the, the, the safety of his disciples. Well, as Jesus had crossed the Sea of Galilee, as he healed uh, the maniac of Gadara, as before that he had calmed the storm, and then he makes it to the other side of the Sea of Galilee again, uh, we see that he heals the woman with the issue of blood, and he heals Jairus' daughter. Chapter 6 then opens with Jesus saying, it's time for me to go home. I'm going to go back to Nazareth. And do you think Jesus knew what was awaiting him when he got there? Absolutely. So why would he go? If he knew that rejection and scorn and mocking and unbelief and ridicule was waiting for him when he got there, why would he go? Well, in part, he went because he loved those people. 
Those were the people that he grew up with. Those were the people that he grew up playing with, maybe going to their houses for dinner as a child or or having a sleepover with his friends. Those were the people that he knew, that, that he loved very deeply, and he wanted to reveal to them in the flesh who he was one more time. And this wasn't the first time Jesus went to Nazareth. The first time he was rejected and they tried to kill him, right? They didn't want anything to do with him. But Jesus says, I'm going to go to Nazareth again. I'm going to reveal to these people who I am and what it is that I came to do. And so as verse 2 opens up, we see that Jesus makes it to Nazareth and he begins teaching in the synagogue. And I just imagine how spectacular it would have been to sit under the teaching of Jesus. To hear the words of the word of life come from his mouth, words from the Father, words that have the ability to shape and transform and change even the most vile of sinners. And as Jesus was teaching, the questions in the crowd began to be asked. They were astonished at what he had to say. And they began to ask these questions, from whence hath this man these things? Now what we need to understand is that their astonishment was not a good astonishment. They were a little put off by what Jesus was saying. Why? Because they knew Jesus. He was the hometown boy. They, they watched him grow up. They understood his story. They understood his past. And probably even as a child, there were people in that town that looked with him with a little bit of disdain because he always did everything so well. And as Jesus made his way back to Nazareth, as he began teaching in the synagogue, the questions started to be asked, what wisdom does he have? How did he get these things? How is he able to do these works? And then in verse 3, the questions get even sharper. They say, it's not this the carpenter? Is not this the son of Mary? Is not this the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Judah and, and Simon? And are not his sisters with us? And this long list of reactions, we must understand, as I said, was not a positive thing. But with every word they spoke, they were in some way criticizing this man that they knew from his childhood. In verse 2, everything that they asked was centered around this idea of criticizing who he had become. Well, who does he think he is? He, He thinks he's better than us, coming in our synagogue and trying to teach us the ways of God. Who does he think he is? Where did he get this power? Where did he get this authority? No doubt as Jesus entered into Nazareth, they had heard about the things that that Jesus had done. And instead of having a heart of belief that was softened towards this idea of Jesus being the Messiah, the Savior of the world, their hearts were hardened and filled with this idea of contempt towards the very one who could save them from their sin. In verse 3, they continued to criticize him and said, Is not this the carpenter? Now, as we think of carpenters today, we understand it's it's an art. Much of carpentry today is an art. But when they... Through this accusation against Jesus, it wasn't a good thing. It was like they were saying, isn't he just a builder, a normal guy like us? He he never sat under a rabbi, and he has no right to be a rabbi. He's just a carpenter. And then they brought out the accusation that is not this the son of Mary? There's, There's debate over why this question was asked. Some say Joseph is not mentioned because Joseph was likely off the scene at this point. Maybe he had, uh, likely he had passed away. And so, so they were just saying, isn't this Mary's son? But don't we know the story of Jesus being Mary's son? 
Wasn't there a lot of skepticism about the, the, the nature of Jesus' birth? Don't you think that those stories were still floating around town in that day? Oh, you know, Mary's son and the Ill illegitimate birth that he had. And then he started talking about his siblings and his, his brothers and his sisters. And, and does Jesus think that he's, he's better than even his own siblings are? And all these accusations, all these questions that were being offered up in this, uh, in, in this text reveal to us that the hearts of these people were against Jesus, the Savior of the world. And as Jesus begins to speak in verse number four, he hits the nail on the head when he says these words. A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. Everywhere else Jesus went, wasn't he met with fanfare and applause? Everywhere else that Jesus went, he was met uh, with people flocking to him, wanting to see what he would do next. They were humbled that he would even come into their presence. He, he, they were humbled that he would allow them to come into his presence. They were blown away over who Jesus was. And yet when he comes home, people wanted nothing to do with him. We know this wasn't just the town folk, but as we saw earlier in Mark's gospel, it was even his own family. They were trying to pull Jesus away from, from teaching, from healing, from doing great signs and wonders and miracles because in part they were embarrassed that he, could, he was claiming he could do these things and in part they were fearful for their own lives. If Jesus kept going down this road, what type of shame was going to come upon them as a family? Uh, what kind of shame was going to be uh, lumped upon them as being those who were associated with Jesus? So it wasn't just the town folks, but it was his own family that he did not receive honor from. And Jesus came to Nazareth on this day knowing full well that this was going to take place. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus or Mark goes on to reveal to us that when Jesus was in Nazareth, he could do there no mighty works, save that he laid hands upon a few sick people and he healed them. This idea of Jesus not being able to do something does not mean that Jesus was limited, but it really means that Jesus chose not to do something. Why? Because don't miracles belong to those who believe? And nobody in that town believed. Nobody in that town wanted to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. They, they, they looked at him with disdain. They looked at him with contempt. They didn't want anything to do with him. And so Jesus wasn't able to do any mighty work save a few little miracles. And I wonder who was it that Jesus did those miracles for? Possibly there was a few in the town that did believe. And Jesus was able to help them in their moment of need. But for the masses, for the majority of the people, everyone looked at him with contempt. Then in verse 6, Mark says, And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about the village teaching. And so here Jesus is coming into his own country. He, he tries to do great works. He tries to teach them, but they don't want anything to do with him. They don't want to listen to the words that he has to say. And so Jesus wasn't doing anything that was spectacular and from them from a miraculous standpoint. And he marveled at their unbelief. Do you understand today that there's only two times in the New Testament where it says that Jesus marveled? One time is here in Mark's Gospel where he marveled at their unbelief. The second time is when Jesus marveled at somebody's great belief. And so I would ask us today, 
In which way do we make Jesus marvel? In which way are, are we making Jesus uh, in awe of the faith that is within us? Their hearts were hard. They would not believe. And so Jesus did not do anything there. But the one instance in Luke 7, 9, where Jesus marveled at the man's great faith was because he believed that Jesus could heal a person without even being present. And so this prophet, as he came to his own country, he was met with hostility. He was met with shame. He was met with unbelief. Their hearts were hardened. And Jesus, though he could have done things, chose not to do things because he understood his own words that it would be casting pearls before swine. That they would trample over them and choose not to believe them, but they would continually reject his teaching. They would continually reject the things that he was doing. And as we think about Jesus being a prophet without honor in his own country, one of the reasons that we believe this was the case was because they were so familiar with Jesus. They understood his story. They understood his background. And their hearts were hardened to think that something so great could come from them and especially from Mary and Joseph uh, with their background and the story that was surrounding them. They, they, were, they were hardened towards this idea. They were familiar with him, and so they did not believe. And I know for some of you in this room, even today, that maybe your story has been similar to Jesus. Certainly you weren't perfect in your past, but have you ever known somebody that had a hard, had a hard time believing that the change that the gospel claims to make actually had changed you? And so sometimes those that are closest to us will be the first to reject the work of God in our lives because they know too much about us. But we can't let their rejection keep us down. We can't let their rejection hinder us from following on or pressing on in the things that God wants us to do. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And in the end of verse 6, the Bible says that even though they rejected, what did Jesus do? He still went about teaching. Because the teaching was the primary ministry that he had. So the first thing we see is a prophet without honor. And as I said, the, the title of our time together is Follow the Leader. And as Jesus brought the disciples into Nazareth, he was really setting them up to understand a great truth. That as he was rejected, so they would be rejected. As he was looked at with disdain, so they would be looked at with disdain. They understood the magnitude of who Jesus was. And they were, they were, their minds were blown when the people of that village would not accept who he was. And Jesus was setting them up to understand a great truth that as he was rejected, so they would be rejected. And that leads us to point two, which is a people ready for rejection. A prophet without honor and a people ready for rejection. In verses 7 through 11, the, the passage continues and says, And he called unto him the twelve and began to send them forth two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no script, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. And he said unto them, In what place soever ye enter into an house, there abide till ye depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you, when you depart, then shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. A people ready for rejection. We don't know fully the time gap between 
verse 6 and 7, it seems like there might have been a little time gap just because of the, the, the way things were going here. Maybe there wasn't a time gap. Maybe Mark is showing us uh, these sequential events that, that come very close together. Either way, we know that when Jesus was rejected, as he continued to teach, there came a point when he called the disciples to himself and he prepared them again. Now, we've already seen this in Mark 3, didn't we? Where Jesus called the disciples to himself and he was preparing them uh, even, even before this scenario. And he said, I'm going to send you out and you're going to do great things. Well, now it was time for them to go. And so wasn't it kind of Jesus to prepare them, say, I'm going to send you out and then show them in his own life the rejection that he faced and then teach them and send them out and say, hey, you're going to face this rejection too. Doesn't misery love company? Don't, don't, don't we find comfort in other people facing the same things that we ourselves have faced, especially when it's Jesus, the perfect, sinless Savior and Son of God? And so he calls the twelve unto him, and he, he prepares them, and he begins to send them out two by two, and it's, it's phenomenal the things that Jesus did, does here. He gave them power over the unclean spirits. Now, they had tried to cast out demons already, and they, they kind of failed. They fell flat on their faces. They had seen Jesus cast out evil spirits. They had seen Jesus do these great works. And now he was reminding them again that he was giving them the authority in his name to do the miraculous. And he said, as he sends them out in verse number 8, he commands them that they should take nothing for their journey. Save a staff only, no script, no bread, no money in their purse. And they should put sandals on their feet. Don't take two coats, but only take one coat. As Jesus was preparing them, as he was getting ready to send them out, and as he sent them out, he was sending them in a way that would show their dependence was completely on him. Can I ask us today, what or who are we depending on in this life? Can I ask us today, do we really depend on God? Isn't it true that, that most of us have the ability to provide for everything we need even when we find ourselves in the lowest places that we could go? Maybe it's not in your bank account, but it's still in your wallet, right, in the form of a credit card. And so, so as Jesus is getting ready to send these disciples out, he's saying, don't take any money with you. Don't take any food with you. You can take a staff. Other places in the Gospels that, that some believe are a parallel passage say that Jesus told them not to take a staff. And so there's a little debate over what that meant. Uh, some believe they could take a walking staff, but they weren't to take a shepherd's staff that would have been used to beat the sheep because he wanted them and those around them to understand that their mission was singular. They weren't looking for a job. They weren't going to, to earn money. They were following Christ wherever Christ called them to go. So take nothing for your journey. You can put sandals on your feet, but don't you even think about taking two coats. You just need to trust me. And in my mind, it took me back to Jesus' great teaching where he said and reminds us that if God cares for the flowers of the fields and the birds of the air, how much more does he care for you and I? So there's this call in that passage and in this passage that if we're truly going to be followers of Christ, that, that we live open-handedly and that we live being dependent upon the person of Jesus Christ. Now, does this mean that Jesus is saying that it's wrong to have stuff? It's not what Jesus is saying. 
But I think what he is saying is that we can't be so, so tied so tightly to our stuff that it keeps us from following him. What if they were to prepare in their own way for this journey? Well, they would probably prepare like Brianna prepares for things and have way too much stuff in the car and take way too long to get it in the car and it would distract them from doing what God had called them to do. So Jesus says, don't take anything with you, but depend upon me. Don't worry about your needs because I will provide for them. I've given you power. I've given you authority. I've given you the ability, and I want you to simply follow me. Don't take any bread. Don't take any money. Just put the sandals on your feet and get busy doing what I have called you to do. Well, that sounds fair enough. Jesus is sending them out. He's got a job for them to do. And then in verse 10, it goes on and says, and he said unto them, in what place... Uh, so ever ye enter into a house, there abide till ye depart from that place. When I first read that, I, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? Get to a place and abide there till you leave. Well, isn't that what you would do regardless? You, you're going to go someplace until you're ready to leave. But what Jesus was saying is when you enter into a village, when you enter into a town... Be content with where you're at in that moment. If somebody uh, offers you a place to stay and they are of, of meager state, they have very little money, enter into their house and stay there. If somebody else comes along and says, hey, I have better accommodations for you, Jesus says, be content where you're at. Don't rob that person of their blessing because something better came along in your mind and you're going to leave them behind and go someplace else. So Jesus says, you need to be prepared with the, the, the minimal of things. You need to be prepared to, to stay in whatever circumstances are offered to you. And then he prepares them in verse 11 and reminds them that this ministry or this journey is probably not going to be one of great success. He says, whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you, when you depart then, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Now, isn't that the opposite of how you would want to start out on a journey? Wouldn't you want the like pep rally, like VBS, where, where everybody's cheering, everybody's excited, and they're all saying, you're going to go out and have great victory. And what does Jesus say? Hey, just remember that there's probably a lot of people that are going to reject you. They're not going to like the message that you have. They're not going to like the things that you're saying. They're not going to receive the words that you speak. And, and how are you supposed to treat them? Well, Jesus says when you leave that village, you need to shake the dust off your feet. And what is that signifying? That you're done with them. That because they rejected the message of the gospel, because they've rejected the person of Jesus Christ, you're not coming back and you're not taking anything from that town with you. Jesus goes on to say that it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it is for that city. Well, we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know the judgment that fell upon them. We know the things that they faced because of their wickedness. And Jesus is saying for those who reject the truth of the gospel in this New Testament scenario, that the punishment or the, 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 the judgment that falls upon Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be less than what these people are going to face because of the evil in their hearts. Now, as they're leaving, as they're going out, they know what came upon Sodom and Gomorrah, and now they're thinking to themselves, man, this message that we're carrying is a very weighty message. And those who reject this message have an eternal judgment that's going to fall upon them that's greater than what we have seen 
in the history of the world. So Jesus prepares them for rejection. Don't take anything with you. Be content where you stay. Be prepared for people not to receive you. Well, Jesus, you're just full of positives, aren't you? You're just encouraging our hearts that this is going to be so easy. But understand, church, Jesus never told us that following him was going to be easy. But you know what? It also reminds me that Jesus never told them that they were responsible for converts. They were only responsible to preach the truth of the word. Every man will make his own decision when it comes to to this idea of receiving or rejecting the gospel. Every man will make his own decision that will determine his future of where he is going to go. And Jesus is saying, don't carry the weight of the future on your shoulders. Carry the weight of the message on your shoulders. I'm responsible for what takes place in the hearts of men. You just follow me. You just be faithful in preaching the truth. You just be faithful in getting the message out. And regardless of how people treat you, understand it's going to be okay. And as the disciples went forth in this scenario, and as they went forth after Christ died and rose again and ascended into heaven, don't you think they were aware that rejection was a reality? They faced all sorts of rejection. But you know what they did? They continued preaching the message. And in our day and age, oftentimes when rejection comes against us, we're quick to slow down in sharing the message or maybe we're quick to change the message so it'll be more easily received. But their prerogative was not to change the message. Their prerogative was, their, their, their goal was to preach the truth that God had given them, to preach the truth, the truth that Christ had delivered to them. And in doing so, they would face rejection. In doing so, they would face scorn. In doing so, they would face ridicule. But Jesus told them to press on. You see, we can't find our identity and whether or not people accept us and our message, but we must find our identity in the one that we proclaim. Men will reject us, but if we're accepted by God in Christ, then we have all the acceptance we need. I wonder, do we really believe that? In Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 42, as the apostles were preaching the gospel, spreading the word of, of, of the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, they were arrested, they were stopped. And in verses 40 through 42 of Acts chapter 5, it says this, And to him they agreed, and when they called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Well, that sounds like a horrible scenario, right? They, they were preaching the truth of Jesus. They were arrested for preaching the truth of Jesus. They were beaten for preaching the truth of Jesus. They weren't going to imprison them, but they let them go. And that passage continues and says, and they, speaking of the, the apostles, and they, when they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, and daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. And so I would ask us this morning, what is our attitude towards rejection? Are we willing to be rejected for the sake of the gospel? Well, what does rejection look like in our day and age, in the places that we live, specifically in America, in 2023? Understand, church, I'm not a doom and gloom guy, but understand that the message of the cross is not tolerable or tolerated by the world. They don't appreciate it. And when we faithfully live and proclaim the message of the cross, the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of the word of God, 
at some form and in some way, there will be some rejection that takes place in your life. Maybe you're not going to be invited to go the places that you used to go. You say, well, that's not rejection. It absolutely is rejection. Because you're standing in direct opposition to the world because of what you believe the Bible teaches, because of what you believe the message of salvation is. And there are people that will indeed reject you. What if what you believe kept you from getting a promotion in the place that you work? You understand that first off, people have to know what you believe at work before you can ever be rejected for believing what you believe? Would you be willing to go through that rejection for the sake of the gospel? And not only would you be willing, would we be willing, but would we be excited that we were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ? And would we continue in that rejection to proclaim the truth of the gospel? And so as Jesus was preparing the disciples, he showed them the rejection that he faced, and then he prepared them for the rejection that they would face. And in Acts, we see that they lived through that rejection with a Christ-centered heart and attitude as they praised God for being rejected for the sake of the gospel. And so I would, I would warn us, again, not with a doom and gloom mentality, but I would warn us to be prepared because I believe in our lifetimes that true rejection will come for the sake of the gospel. That the world won't tolerate our message, that they won't tolerate what we'll believe, that we'll, they will look at us as being so narrow-minded that they want nothing to do with us. And if you don't believe that's happening, then your eyes are closed to the reality that's around you. So be prepared for rejection. I was talking with somebody the other day, and we know that as time goes on, things are going to get worse. And can I tell you today that there's a part of me that's excited about that reality? Not that I'm excited for difficulty and trial, but I'm excited in some sense because it's going to reveal who is who in the body of Christ. Not in arrogance, not in lifting ourselves up in pride and saying who we are, but I think there is in this lifetime going to be a day of reckoning when true followers of Christ continue to be true followers of Christ. How many people fell away through the Gospels because of the things that they faced? Many. And we're told in the Word of God that that will take place in our life as well. So while you may have hoped for a really positive message today, I think it is positive. I really do. And I would have, have you think through your own heart and life if you're prepared for the rejection that comes along with truly following Jesus. Isn't it Jesus who said, if they hated me and rejected me, then they're going to hate and reject you as well? Now... To go to the other side of this, we as believers, as followers of Christ, must make sure that we're actually being hated and rejected for looking like Christ, right? Because isn't there a difference? Can't we hold our preferences and, and our, our desires at the same level sometimes as what we think Christ would want us to do? And hopefully our preferences are being informed by the word of God. But if Jesus says we're going to be rejected, we better make sure we're, we're, we're rejected for the right things and for the right reasons. But as we're rejected, if it's for following Christ, may our hearts be filled with joy as we follow the only one who is worthy of following. So we see a prophet who is without honor. We see 
a people prepared for rejection, and then finally this morning, we see a work that needs to happen. In verses 12 and 13, the Bible says, And they went out and preached that men should repent, and they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. A work that needs to happen. And so Jesus came to Nazareth. He displayed for them the rejection that he faced in his own life. And then he called them to himself and said, I'm going to send you out and you too are going to face rejection as you live for me, as you do the things that I've called you to do. And as Jesus sent them out and they began to do the work, church, we need to understand that the work that they were sent to do, the primary work of preaching repentance is still the work that we are called to today. We don't change the message. We may change some methods here and there, but the primary message that we preach is the idea of repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. And why is that the message we preach? Because it's the only message of salvation. And as Jesus called the disciples, and as he sent them out, as he told them of the things that they were going to face, as they thought about the judgment that was going to fall upon those who rejected the truth of their message, as they thought about the evil that was waiting for them as they went into these villages, the Bible says that they went out and they preached that men should repent. Repentance is not a popular message, oftentimes, even in the church today. Why? Because we think we should get to determine what our Christian lives should look like, regardless of what the Word of God says. But we don't get to make that call. We don't get to determine right from wrong. The Bible has already done that. We don't get to determine what is right for us versus what is right for everybody else. And so as the disciples went out, they began to preach that men should repent. As I said, the reason they preached repentance was because repentance was the way to come to Christ. There are many today who would say that if you just believe in Jesus, then everything is going to be okay. It doesn't matter if it changes your life or not. As long as you believe in Jesus, friend, that message is not in the Bible. There has to be repentance. There has to be repentance. There has to be this this contrition towards sin, this feeling of the weight of of your sin and who your sin was against. Because if, if you're never burdened for your own sin, you'll never truly have a desire to turn fully to Christ. And so they went with the message of repentance. Repentance means to turn away from the sin that holds you in bondage and turn to Christ, the one who can free you from bondage. And while so many would say repentance is a negative message, Friends, the fruit of repentance is always a positive message. That through the name of Christ, you will see forgiveness of your sins. And so simply believing isn't enough. Simply believing that Jesus is real isn't enough. For there are many in our world who believe Jesus lived. That he was a real person. In fact, the Bible tells us that even the demons believe. But they don't believe to salvation. And so saying a prayer that just simply says, Jesus, I believe in you, without ever having a heart of repentance towards the one that you've sinned against, will never produce any sort of salvation in your life. So as Jesus sent them out, they went and they preached repentance. In every village they went, they spoke the truth of the gospel. They told people of Jesus that it was to Jesus they needed to turn to. And as they preached this message, they were in good company because this is also the message that Jesus preached. And it's also the message that John the Baptist preached. And next week, as we look into the life of John the Baptist, what are we going to see? 
that he was beheaded for preaching this very message. But I believe he was beheaded with great joy in his heart because he died preaching the only message that was worth preaching. So they went out and they preached. They went out and they preached the truth of repentance. They went out and they preached the truth of Jesus. And for some, it led them to believe. For some, it led them to become disciples. For some, it led them to become devout followers of the person of Jesus Christ. And for others, this message of repentance made their hearts become even harder than they were before as they rejected the truth of the gospel. And so they preached repentance. In verse 13, the Bible says that as they preached repentance, they also cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Now, if we're honest, we would say, give me verse 13 and not verse 12, right? Let me go out into the community and I'll just start healing people and I'll start anointing people with oil and I'll start seeing all people, all these people healed. But what do we understand about the miracles and the healings that these men were performing, but also that Jesus was performing, that the miracles were always pointing to what? The message. The miracles that they performed were validating the message that they preached. And while it was pretty awesome, the things that they were able to do, we don't necessarily believe that we can do these things anymore. We know that God can do these things. But as they lived in this day and age, as they lived in this time in history, God was allowing them to do the miraculous, to validate the message that they were preaching so that those around them could see that the truth of the gospel was the only thing that could save them. Everywhere they went, the message was repent, and everywhere they went, they were doing different things to draw draw people's hearts into this reality that the gospel was indeed the truth. Do you think that as they went into villages and they saw people that were healthy and whole, that they they healed them? No, that would be silly, right? You can't heal somebody who is is not sick. You can't heal somebody who has no disease. And so they, they changed the method. God used different works to validate the message in every place that they went. In some ways, they were contextualizing to the people they were going to see. They they spoke to certain needs that certain people had and tied it to the gospel so that they could understand that while they needed physical healing, in a greater way they needed spiritual healing, they needed to come under the power of Jesus Christ that he could heal them permanently rather than just healing them temporarily. And as they went out, the reality is that we are called to go out as well. As I said earlier, when you came in this morning, you sat probably on or next to a little church invite card um, that just has basic information about the gospel and basic information about our church. Can I ask you, will you truly consider giving that out this week? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand again because we do it all the time and the answer is always the same. Who knows somebody that's not saved? Every hand in the room goes up. So then I would ask, what are we doing about it? As they went out, they went with the message. And as we go out, we go with the message as well that Jesus is the only one who saves. That looking to Christ by faith and repenting of our sins is the only thing that brings hope in this world. And as Jesus was pouring into his disciples here, as he was training them, as he was teaching them, as he was nurturing them, he was reminding them that rejection was going to face 
but in the end, the gospel will prevail. Who here today is thankful that the gospel prevailed in your heart? We all are. So who's to say that the gospel can't prevail in the hearts of those that you think are too far gone as well? The gospel can prevail. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation to every single person who is willing to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So as the disciples went forth with the message of repentance, so too we go forth with the message of repentance. So we think about going into the world we think about sharing the message of the gospel, I would encourage you to think of every situation as an individual situation. What do you mean by that? Well, you can't go with the same spiel and the same line to every person that you're going to. Why? Because every person finds themselves at a different place in life. That's one of the things I like about organizations like the FCA is that they're contextualizing to reach a certain group of people. It's kind of like what Paul says, I became all things to all men. Therefore, I might what? Win a few. It's what Jesus did when he went to the woman at the well. He didn't talk to her about, about all these political things. He talked to her about her life and the things that she was facing in that moment. And he didn't spend much time there, but what did he make a beeline to? The reality of the message of the gospel. And so don't go into every scenario and every situation with these memorized lines that you look like a robot with every person that you speak to. But do life with people. Understand the hurts that they have and the weights that they're bearing and then point them to this reality that Jesus is the one who can free them from every one of those things. It's what the disciples did. And that's what we're called to do as well. But you know what that means? It means that you actually have to get to know people who are lost. You actually have to spend time with them. You have to put up with things about them that, that maybe drive you a little crazy. You think the disciples ever drove Jesus crazy? Yeah. I was thinking in the car the other, it was last night we were driving home and the kids, they were filled with questions. And I was like, man, is this what Jesus felt like with the disciples? Like he just wanted to tell them, please stop, right? You're, you're on my nerves at this point, please stop. But what did Jesus do in every one of their questions? He lovingly and gently answered them. Why? Because he had a greater purpose in even answering the simplest of questions. And that's how we can reach the world as well, by lovingly and gently caring for them in the places that they find themselves. So as we think about this idea of following the leader, as Jesus went into his own country and he was rejected, he didn't let the rejection stop him, but rather he used it to teach the disciples a valuable lesson that they would face rejection too. But rejection could never pull them away from the message that they were to proclaim, but rather rejection should fuel the desire to proclaim the message. Why? Because one day judgment is coming. And for all those who reject Jesus Christ as their Savior, for all those who have had the opportunity to hear the truths of the gospel preached, that judgment will be worse than anything that they could ever imagine. And friends, if heaven is real, then don't we have to believe that hell is also real? And if hell is real, then shouldn't we go into the world and proclaim the message that Jesus has given us? Can I ask you today, when's the last time you truly wept over somebody who was lost? You thought about their eternal state and your heart was just broken for them. 
May we have the heart of Jesus when it comes to this idea of evangelism. May we go with great passion. May we go with great intensity. May we follow his example. And when rejection comes, we shake the dust off our feet and we go to another place. Why? Because we still believe the message of the gospel is the only way for people to come to Christ in salvation. And so I would ask this this morning. Are we following the leader? Are we following Jesus? As I said earlier, we can be thankful that, that as our leader, Jesus doesn't put roller skates on us and blindfold us and, and trick us and fall off and punch us when we're least expecting it. But he leads us in truth. He leads us with great purpose. He leads us with great intentionality. He leads us to complete his will for our lives, to preach the message of the gospel to the world. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, well, following Jesus, that's probably going to cost me something. And I love what Oswald Chambers says about this. It, it never costs a disciple anything to follow Jesus. To talk about cost when you're in love with anyone is an insult. Can you imagine if, if you bought somebody a $5,000 gift. It wasn't your spouse, it was just a friend. and You gave that gift to them and they, you told them there's no strings attached at all. This is yours. I bought this specifically for you. I spent all that I had so that I could get this for you. And time goes on and you see them a few weeks later and you say, hey, how do you like that $5,000 gift I gave you? And then a few weeks later, you see him again, and you say, hey, you still appreciate that $5,000 gift I gave you? You see him a few weeks later, and you say, hey, do you realize that I spent everything I had so that I could give you that $5,000 gift? What's that, that person's attitude going to be towards that gift eventually? You can have the gift back, right? I don't even want it. Because all you're doing is throwing in my face how much it costs you. Every time we think about following Jesus and we say, that's just going to cost too much. Or when we follow Jesus, we say, Jesus, do you know what I gave up for you? At that point, we're maximizing what we have done and minimizing what he has done. And what is it that he did for us? He died on the cross in our place. And so anything that we can give to him is in reality Nothing in comparison to what he has done for us. So I would ask us today, will we follow the leader? If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, understand that the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples are still true. That for those who reject the reality of the gospel, that Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but through faith and repentance in Christ alone, the reality is, if you reject Jesus, then you will spend your eternity separated from him forever in a place called hell. And maybe in your heart and in your mind, you're still saying, that, that sounds like too much for the things that I've done. Sure, I've sinned, but my sin hasn't been that great. Well, thinking in a secular sense or a worldly sense, maybe your sin hasn't been that great. But we have to think in a spiritual sense, and it's not just the things that we've done 
but who we have committed those things against. And so maybe you've only told one lie. Maybe you've only stolen one thing. Maybe you only cheated one time. But ultimately, every sin is against God. When we understand sin in that regard, when we understand sin in that way, we understand that even one sin against the holy and just and righteous God is enough to separate us from him forever. So maybe it's, it's time to stop thinking about how good you are. Maybe it's time to start thinking about how good God is, that even in your sin, he provided a way for you to be redeemed. I would say the majority of people in this room today have come to that understanding that the Spirit has broken their hearts to the reality of their sin, and by faith and repentance, they've turned to Christ. My question is this morning, will you do that? Will you turn to him? For those of us who are saved, I would simply ask you, are you following Jesus? Remember, it's not up to us to determine what following looks like because God has already outlined that for us in his word. Are we following? Do we live with a passion for the lost that's fueled by our understanding of what God has done for us through Christ? If we believe and yet we hold this message to ourselves, type of person does that make us? So are we following him? We're taking the message that he has given us to the world. Are we submitting our lives to him so that when the world looks at us, they see that we're not living for us. We're living for someone greater. You know, the, one of the problems in, in much of Christianity, at least in America, is that we've confused or conflated the idea of the American dream with the idea of following Christ. We all love this idea of, of life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. But do we understand that true happiness, that true life, that true liberty only comes from following Jesus Christ, from loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and everything else that we give ourselves to that is not Christ will lead us to disappointment. So maybe we stop, it's time we stop living for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the, in the American dream sense. But maybe it's time we also find our life, our liberty, and our pursuit of happiness in submitting ourselves to Christ and Christ alone. So again, I ask, will, will we follow the leader? Let's